Hey everyone, this is Michael Panate. Welcome to the Spending Time Podcast. I'm joined today by Zach Pina, social media manager and contributor at a blog to watch. How are you doing, Zach? Pretty good. How's it going, Michael? Pretty good. Enjoying a nice summery day. Uh, trying to get outside as much as I can, but uh, you know, it's good. How it about is you? what it is. Yeah. No, we uh, we're deep in the middle of summer here in the Bay Area, and as uh, Mark Twain famously said, he never knew a colder winter day than a summer in San Francisco, or something to that effect. <laughs> and uh, there's plenty of fog, and there's a little bit of sun, kind of where I'm based, but I'm headed into the city in a few hours, and I know it's going to be winter jacket time. So it really doesn't warm up here until uh, October, November. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Everything's a little backwards, but, uh, but you yeah, do you do a lot of uh, cycling too, right? Yeah, been... I ride. I ride a fair bit. I'm actually riding this evening, um, and that's it's it's funny because it's the, you know it's July 31st when we're recording this, and I'll go full full base layer arm warmers, uh, jersey, vest, probably a hat. <laughs> after after moving to Seattle, yeah. I really want to get into cycling, <laughs> but I'm scared at how deep I can fall into the hobby because I know yeah. it isn't cheap. No, it's it's not, but it is it is a rabbit hole just as much as uh, I, I find. You know, there's a, yeah, there's a weird balance of like you know, I could get a new watch, or I could get a new set of wheels. You know, which one is going to give me more enjoyment? Ultimately, like you really you really can't in like the the smiles per dollar <laughs> ratio. It's it's tough to beat getting out on a bike and and uh, and rallying with your buddies. But um, so yeah, I, I try to I try to co them back and forth between the two worlds. Um, but yeah, they're both expensive and and both just stupid. So <laughs> yeah, right now the only thing I have access to is those bike share app. Bikes. Oh yeah, yeah with the nerdy basket on the front. So maybe I'll upgrade soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, I was so surprised last time I was up in Seattle, how many line, line bikes, right? How many of those bikes that oh, were all yeah. over the place? Yeah. And when Piles they came to them. the Bay area, people resisted those so hard, like throwing them into the Bay and they were getting like dismantled and taking, I mean, has that been the, the line bike vandalism has unlocked like a completely new level of creativity that you're seeing in people. Yeah. Yeah. We get the brake lines cut here. So oh, that's, that's nasty. <laughs> But anyways, that is nasty. Speaking of uh, fun summer activities, um, today we're gonna we're gonna visit some topics that are pretty heavy in the watch world right now, and we're gonna try to balance that with some fun topics as well, namely watches that we wear during summer when we're active or just hanging out. Um, and I think probably the best way to get this started is with uh, a wrist check. So, what uh, what watch are you wearing today, Zach? Oh man. Um, I got, I've been wearing a, uh, a Panerai actually. I never thought I would be a Panerai owner or a Panerai fan, but what I realized, uh, six or eight months ago, I'd been kind of a closeted fan, like following the brand for a long time. I, you know, I, I love, I love the aesthetic, but hate the size. I've always hated the size. Yeah. Uh, and I think what at SIH in 2016, 2017, I can't remember if it was, uh, last year or the previous years, um, they introduced the the new 9000 series movements going in a, in a new, uh, 42 millimeter, uh, both luminor and radiomere case. And, uh, the, the 42 is amazing. I mean, it's still a proper sports watch, hundred meter water resistance. Uh, it's got a modern in-house manufacturer movement. Um, the aesthetic is preserved. 
Um, but the thickness is really, really nice. The thickness and the lug to lug are both super manageable and I have a pretty small wrist. Um, mm. so I, I feel like this particular, I've, I'm, I've got the 1523, which again, I, I've, I've said this before. I'm kind of allergic to, uh, reference numbers. This one I know because <laughs> I kind of agonized over it for, for a fair amount of time, but I would say that I've been wearing this watch the most, um, out of pretty much everything this summer like it has a super long power reserve so i'll set it down for the weekend and i'll pick it back up and it's still running so it's all right i'll just wear this again has a jumping hour hand yeah 42 42 millimeters uh it's probably 12 millimeters thick um wears really really nice and you know penarai's done 12 or they, they they've done 42 millimeter pieces in the past older ones um but they're they're thick, they're super thick, and they wear they wear really awkwardly, at least on my wrist, because yeah. they wear tall and short. Um, this is just like the proportions are, are really nicely dialed, and uh, yeah, I've been I've been really impressed with with this particular set of uh, Panerai, and I know you know they've they've certainly caught some a fair share of like I, I would say deserved amount of of uh, vitriol from sort of their dedicated fan base with the Douay collection. Um, but I feel like this really straddles that line between, you know, wearing like a traditionally, I mean, it's, it's a lot of dial. It still feels like a Panerai. Um, but it, you know, it's a lot more wearable and I, I feel like it doesn't betray the, the roots of what the watch set out to do. So I, I've been extremely happy with it. It looks amazing on pretty much any strap you put on it. Um, 22 millimeter straps. So I didn't have to buy, you know, (laughs) a drawer full of new size straps too. So yeah, good stuff. What about you? Yeah, I still I still really dig the uh, forty two millimeter submersible. Um, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I, you know, and I, I kind of went back and forth between this and that, and ultimately, you know, I, I have a few other divers, and and um, and also the wait list for apparently there was a, there was a there was a fair uh, a fairly lengthy wait list at uh, at Govbert for that one, so I ended up passing. Oh, wow. But yeah, yeah, that's a great piece. Yeah, no, for me, it's uh, it's. It's a watch uh, that came in not too long ago. It's not mine. It's in for review, but I've been wearing it a lot. And it's the uh, Tudor Black Bay GMT that came out this year. Ooh. Um, and I like it way more than I thought I would. <laughs> why uh, for, Why were you not expecting to like it? I'm curious. You know, I so I don't think this was really reported on during Basel, but there's actually a pretty deep bevel on the underside of the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I heard Black Bay GMT, I just thought to myself, okay, it's going to be a really fat um, watch. I'm not really going to be into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really sure how well a GMT would translate into the Black Bay lineup. But uh, when they actually when they actually um, included this little bevel on the edges of the underside of the case, it actually visually cuts down on a lot of the heft of the oh, watch. Interesting. So huh. while the thickness isn't technically affected. It definitely feels like a slimmer watch. Oh, that's um, funny. And it's totally it's totally wearable. Um, you know. And if you ask me, I think I think the Rolex GMT is a little overhyped. Yeah, um, I agree. I'm digging I'm digging this one a little bit more. And uh, actually the two tone 
uh, Rolex GMT Master that came out, but that's a that's another story. Different story, yeah. No, that's interesting yeah. to hear about the about the Black Bay GMT. I've I've long not been a fan of the Black Bay. I, I actually have a Pelagos, and I, I always found the Black Bay to wear uh, just like long, like too it wears too rectangular. But mm-hmm. I remember when I put the the GMT on at Basel, I definitely felt it definitely felt different. It felt like it wore a lot better, and I didn't I didn't put two and two together or articulate the fact that there was that bevel in the under. So I'll have to take a second look at it when uh, when it when it comes around. I'd be curious to check out your review though. Make sure you get some photos of the undersize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely want to see that. Make sure I emphasize <clears throat> that. Um, also, another thing about this watch, I just feel that with the aluminum Pepsi bezel, you get such a such a more appropriate variety of color tones. Depending yeah. on the light, it almost looks like a Lake Placid blue oh, cool. or a deep deep aquamarine uh you you sometimes get closer to the faded look of an older gmt master yeah and sometimes the serochrome bezels on the new gmt masters uh, they can be a little bit flashy so the muted tones of the uh the aluminum bezel that's that's something i really appreciate but yeah this is it's a well-sized watch it's 41 millimeters it has the manufacturer mt 5652 and um i never I never really appreciated power reserve until messing with this watch because this one has the uh, 70 hour power reserve. Oh, that's and I, awesome. And I forgot, I forgot. I, I, I wound it up when I first got it and I wore it for a bit, um, put it away for a few days and came back to it. And I was like, this thing is still running. It's, that's wild. So, um, it's, I guess it's kind of realize. amazing what that does to your wear habits and to your collection yeah. when you can you can rotate a watch every two or three days and come back and it's still running still keeping chronometric uh you know still keeping cost standards or whatever and that's amazing yeah that's what i did i opened the box thinking i was going to grab another watch okay i'm going to wind it set it but then I saw this Black Bay still running, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to wear this now. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for convenience. I know I, I the uh, I, the Panerai's kind of had that same effect in the collection where, you know, why wouldn't you wear it? It's running. It looks great. I'll just switch the strap real quick. I mean, it's the interaction with your watch on a daily basis or a semi-daily. I try to rotate every three or four days. But, but again, like if you're rotating every three or four days and it's still running when you come back to it, that rotation, I mean, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, have definitely. you uh, have you had a chance to to uh, to travel with it at all? I mean, it is a true. You know, it's funny. There's two types of GMT watches, and I feel like this gets glossed over. I'm as as Bilal can attest to. Um, I'm GMT obsessed. I think it's the most useful complication out there. Um, but there are two types of GMTs. There's there's like there's the desk phone GMT essentially, where you you know you're doing business with people on the other side of the world, and you need to know what time it is in Sri Lanka right. or Indonesia or whatever. Um, and then there's the actual a traveler's GMT where you're moving around the country, you're moving around the world, you land in a new location, you need to be able to set the watch quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that you know, those types of watches are much rarer, uh, the Tudor, of course, being one of them. Um, but I think I, I feel like they get lumped together really easily uh, because, you know, just at any GMT watch, because it shows in other time zones, people are like, oh, it's perfect for traveling. It's actually a pain in the ass for traveling if you can't, <laughs> if you can't adjust the, the hour hands quickly. So have, have you had a chance to kind of put that to use? I haven't had the tra- chance to travel with it just yet, but this does have the Flyers GMT, I think they call it, where the uh, primary hour hand is the one that's that can be independently set. Uh, I think other Solita-based um, GMT movements don't. It's the GMT hand. Correct. That, uh, I have a Glycine Airman that behaves that way. Yep, yep. 
Um, but no, not yet. I hope to soon. Um, but this this would be the perfect Traveler's GMT watch, I think. Uh, in addition to something like the Explorer Two, yep, um, yep, or or kind of a regular GMT Master. It's also great. It's so satisfying to just run that hour hand and yes. watch the the date switch. Yeah, um, pretty pretty damn cool if you ask me. Yeah, that's a that's a super useful complication. And yeah, all the Eta and Salida based movements. Um, it's slave to the twenty four hour hand, so it's it's essentially reverse of what you just described. Um, yeah. where the, the 24 hour hand is the quick set. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's not super useful. I know that, um, who is it? There's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on the names now. Oh, Eterna has a, a, a GMT module that has that same behavior. So to my knowledge, uh, Eterna, Rolex, um, Omega, all of Omega's GMT movements have the same behavior. Um, yeah, and Tudor as well. I would almost argue though that, um, I kind of, while this GMT is really cool, I kind of still like the 12 hour bezel that you could just rotate without oh, undoing yeah, a okay. crown or, and, yeah. and actually I have a, I have an Oris, uh, pro pilot world timer. The one that you can switch, you can, um, you can move the hour hand independently by twisting the bezel. So that's another pretty cool. That's a super cool piece. Yeah. 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 It's, that's a wild watch. <laughs> that's kind of cheating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, I feel um, like Ariel just reviewed that interesting Traveler's Watch. We should have we should have posted a, a video or something on Instagram about that. But uh, that Terra Cielo Marley uh, watch, the TCM. Oh, that had two time Italian. zones? Well, it didn't have two time zones, but it does have a really interesting uh, means of setting the hands where you take the watch off, you disengage this, uh, this locking mechanism on the underside, and then you just you rotate the bezel and the bezel actually sets both the That's hour true. and the minute hands. And so you can just, you can just whip the whole thing around. Um, it, it doesn't quick set it as it does with like a, you know, with kind of what we're talking about with the tutor, but it is, it is super cool and very satisfying to, to pop it off and adjust that in, you know, hourly or 30 minute increments or whatever. So, there are other options out there, um, but that, that's that's I, you know I used to have a Glycine Airman as well, and uh, that was kind of my first foray into GMT watches. And, but I do tend to move around a bit for work and, uh, and with a, a block to watch from time to time as well. And I've always just found it super handy to be able to um, you know pop it out when you land at a new airport, click click, pop it back in. <laughs> yeah, definitely a nice feature. Uh, the only thing I would change on this tutor is um, I would just I really love it if the bracelet tapered a little bit more um oh yeah but that's a that's a very small issue it's still a really nice bracelet and uh, super comfy especially during the warmer months um so speaking of summer watches what else yes. uh, do you what else do you kind of recommend we were gonna i don't know how many picks you have i just have one other watch that has been competing with this tutor still oh yeah um, yeah, and I think we're both fans of this one. <laughs> it was it was released last year. It's the Doxa Sub Three Hundred. Aha! Yes, <laughs> professional black long edition. <laughs> That's an extremely cool piece. It's it's funny that you say that too, because I was you know we 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 were going through the the paces for this uh, you know blog to watch editors pick our top 
three-handed uh, sports watches for summer, essentially. And yeah. I was kind of going on the list of, you know, is it a grail? Is it something I'm wearing a ton? Is it, you know, so essentially the two watches I've worn the most this summer, the Panerai, which is on my wrist right now, and also I've got a, a Doxa sub uh, 750T, which I bought actually off of eBay a few months ago, but completely NOS. It's a watch from 2011, I think. Still had stickers, everything fully intact. Uh, it was just like lying around in some dude's shop. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty unbeatable summer piece. I mean that, and you've got the orange one though, correct? You've got the professional. Yeah. The 750 T is that also the GMT version? It's not, they did a 750 GMT as well. Um, okay. but the, this, you know, the 750 is, is more of like, it's a, it's a, I would call it Doxas kind of Pelagos essentially, or black Bay. It's a, it's a slightly larger case. It's like a 43, 44 millimeter case, slightly wider dial. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's relatively thin, but I mean it feels feels fully modern. Whereas what you've got is like the like the Black Bay Fifty Eight of Doxa, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And it's it was impressive to realize how slim the watch actually wears when you finally get your hands on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I took this watch to Colombia this year, and it was just. Uh, I brought this watch and maybe three other watches, thinking that I was gonna, you know get a ton of travel time out of them but uh this is this is the watch that stayed on my wrist for most of the time there's something something really fun about being in the water with that watch um chasing taxis with the watch on, <laughs> bumping it around yeah i love that just a classic, very very uh, cool watch classic clive Cussler style yeah. true, true to yeah. <laughs> true to the og <laughs> maybe a little more touristy than clive, but, uh, that's super cool yeah it's it's um you know, Ariel has kind of waxed poetic about this before, but there is something really satisfying about putting a piece through sort of the, you know, the way, the way a watch designer sits down and, and, you know, I always think it's funny too, because even as we're talking about travelers watches and the preference between the behavior of the GMT hand or divers watches and the preference behind the color or the feature set or whatever, everybody's, everybody's use case is generally fairly different. Um, so it's always interesting to see how all of these different use cases mesh together under the vision of kind of what the, the designer intended that product to be used as, whether it's a dive watch or a pilot watch. And so there is something really satisfying about, um, getting this bright orange watch into the surf or yeah, like some dusty street in the middle of nowhere or, (laughs) or whatever it's like. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool adventure, adventure watches. Kind of on the flip side, though, of uh, you know more more attainable adventure watches. What what was your pick for the um, if you had to if a uh, Grail? I kind of cringe at the term Grail, but if you had uh, if money was no object, what what was your pick there? Oh man, so yeah, we we published uh, we published an article this past Sunday, and it was a um, it was an editor's list of our favorite three-hand sports watches um the term grail was tossed around quite a bit but we i think we avoided it for the most part um but my pick was a little less attainable and i (laughs) I still it's one of those things where it it really is love at first sight and you can't really explain it but um it was the 15400 st black dial royal oak um just plain time only stainless steel date at three o'clock um never never in my life would i have expected to um find myself attracted to a royal oak but as i wrote in the article 
I had some time to kill in Vegas. I think it was last year and they have a, uh, a boutique over there and I was just blown away by the watch. Uh, yeah. just everything from the, from the bracelet, especially the bracelet. I just, I can't even fathom how they produce that. You know, every, every link individually tapering and camphored and polished and brushed. Um, it just, it blows my mind. And, uh, I think as, as luxurified as the Royal Oak has become, I think it's still almost humble, mm-hmm. uh, especially in AP's current catalog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think I could do far worse. <laughs> um, yeah. With no, it's, it's, it's funny. It's funny that you say that because um, it is one of those rare watches that uh, looks and feels every bit like a true like luxury product. It feels like a five figure watch, and yeah. it, you know it's it's funny with all the hype around the Nautilus and the you know with with all of Paddock's kind of luxury sport pieces going off the chain right now. Um, I, I I don't know if it's if it's becoming a victim of its own hype, but like you put one of those on, and there is a little bit of like wait, that's it? Like this goes for 50 grand on the pre-owned market. That's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas oh, yeah. when you do put on a Royal Oak, you know, especially, especially some other modern variants where they've really dialed in the, the, the finishing. And like you said, the bracelet and everything, nothing fits like one of those bracelets. And they, they, it's just, it, it feels like something really, really special. I've never, I've never tried one on and had a, that's it moment, um, with an AP. And I mean, I, Say what you will about sort of their aesthetic and the design language, which I feel like is a totally different topic of conversation. I think they look and are they the part. I would argue. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like the Seiko Monster. I feel I feel like <laughs> I feel like the AP is the Seiko Monster of the high end <laughs> luxury watch market. You know, because you, you you get into the watches and. You know, you start looking for affordable stuff. You're gonna land on the Seiko Monster and just think you think to yourself, "Wow, that thing is hideous." And most people have the same reaction to the Royal Oak. Yep. But you you really have to sometimes just get it, and um, <clears throat> you know, trying it on in person is a big part of the equation a lot of times. Um, and yeah, that thing is is becoming pretty scarce, just like every other um, stainless steel model from from a lot of the brands right now yeah. unfortunately <laughs> yeah it's a bummer to it's a it's it's a bummer that that's happening i guess you know again it's another podcast uh topic entirely i've i've thankfully managed to avoid uh the royal oak entirely because it is a sports watch but it's only water resistant to 50 meters and i know there is the royal oak offshore which doubles that or triples it i think but um yeah i i in the back of my mind i i have to everything in my collection has to start at 100 meters at least um so uh, so anyway i've i've managed to avoid that my my pick was um was kind of along those lines i it's it was funny i I went back and forth between a few picks and i I ended up sending um i sent i just sent two over to bilal and i just said pick the one that you think works the best with the story and so he (laughs) he he ended up you know i I do I, i do i love world timers i love watches that travel well and it's killing me that omega has this incredible um world timer that's only available in platinum um, has this enamel dial. I, I, I honestly don't love the aesthetic of it. Um, I love the fact that they've built a world timer into the Aquaterra platform, which is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful case. It wears really, really well. Um, I think the Aquaterra is kind of this, as we're talking about luxury sport watches, it is, I would argue one of the best, um, 
options that you could get for under 5k i mean i think oh, yeah. i think on strap they're 45 or yeah they're just just under 5k amazing watches uh with the new meta certified movements um you know they wear really really well on a wide variety of straps um, so anyway everything that the aquaterra has done i would say in the last two years has been really exciting um not just for uh stainless steel luxury sport watches but it's cool to see them kind of pushing the envelope forward with bringing a world timer here now the downside of course is that it's fifty thousand dollars and you know it's, it's like total halo product but i am kind of hoping as as omega has done in the past is where they kind of with new technologies and new um dial treatments and such they often introduce halo products uh, you know one to two product cycle years out from kind of bringing it to the rest of the masses so i am kind of hoping that this this i'm 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 preemptively picking this now in hopes that um it'll be out in steel and maybe a slightly more pared down dial uh maybe next year for basel or or something so fingers crossed for that i did also send below the uh the vacheron constantine um their world timer as well the overseas world oh, yeah, timer that's right super cool piece i cheated a little bit you know because the goal is well, three-handed sport watches well i mean these <laughs> have three hands <laughs> it's, got, it's got some other stuff in there but it is three hands um but that's another just you know incredibly beautiful piece it's funny it's about the same price as the omega oddly enough um this but, omega uh, was really out of uh yeah, you ha- I think you had the most out of the box selection for this um, <laughs> this list we came up with, but it looks it looks killer. Um, you, you said there's something you're not really too much of a fan of on the dial. What is is it? Just the yeah, the coloring? I don't, yeah, I don't I don't love um, you know I I don't I. It just looks. It looks like a. It looks like a kid painted it. I'll be. I'll be I blunt. <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't look very good. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that it's enamel. I know it's done by hand. I know it's. Uh, you know, there's 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 absolutely art and craft behind that. But um, I do like it when there's a little bit more of. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the VC, um, there's it's kind of a relief and it's done in a gradient as well. So part of the world is is uh, dark. It's like a darker gradient. It's like darker silver brushed gradient. It's really beautiful how they executed it. Um, it doesn't quite look like a, a map that was drawn essentially. Oh yeah, um, this thing is cool. Yeah, that's a kick-ass watch. Um, <laughs> and also, I, and I don't believe because I've never seen this one in motion, um, but the globe motif in the center of the VC actually rotates as well. It's part of that disc, so it rotates. You know, every 24 hours i think the omega does it as well although i did just something about the world on there just looks a little bit off to me there's too many kind of textures and things going on here but i do i, do, I, I would absolutely buy that if it was in stainless steel even if they did the dial one for one the same um, yeah this this vc uh, is a little more subtle i think yeah. in the way the globe was done yeah um yeah I agree. a little more casual less uh Less artsy, I suppose. You know, less artsy, but it's arguably more complicated to make. So it's interesting how you can kind of you can you can be more subtle about it and have it come out, you know, um, you know, with a higher level of complexity. But I've you know I, I last summer um, my wife and I did kind of an extended trip to Indonesia for three weeks, two three weeks, um, and that was the only watch that I brought was I had at the time the Aquaterra GMT, it was their good planet, um, and that was the previous generation of the Aquaterra, so the case was designed a little bit different, um, it just didn't fit me very well, but to this day, uh, that is probably my favorite watch that I've ever owned and sold, unfortunately, I just just couldn't get it to sit right, the newer cases, the, 
um, where the straps attach and the curvature of the lugs are a little bit different. So that same case size um, would arguably fit better, hopefully. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of holding holding out hope that uh, that they bring it back correctly. But you know, it was a, it was a really easy watch to um, it was a really easy watch to wear. I was able to dive with it, swim with it. It's kind of lower key than like a you know a Rolex Explorer Two, which arguably is probably the closest comparison. Um, it's nice to have a GMT Asia and Indonesia. Um, the time zone difference between here and California is kind of wonky or between there oh, yeah. and California is kind of wonky as I'm sure you know. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Fingers crossed, but that was, uh, that was my pick for the list. Very cool. Well, I think, uh, I think maybe it's a good time to switch gears and talk about the kind of the big news that swept the watch world this weekend. I believe it was Sunday, um, in a Swiss, uh, newspaper NZZ. Oh boy. Yeah, some <laughs> some big news. Um, if you haven't seen the article on a blog to watch, be sure to check it out. But the gist of it is that the Swatch Group is pulling out of Basel World, um, effective 2019. So uh, that was, you know, I don't know about you, but I found it pretty unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. And it's certainly significant news. Um, I'm just still... I don't want to say it's a state of shock. I'm just trying to figure out what Basel World 2019 is going to look like without, mm. you know, brands like Omega yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but I am excited about people like Nick Hayek uh, publicly calling for change and reform, um, you know, especially in the world of trade shows and the way the watch industry does business in general. Because I think it's very easy for, um, people up top to become very complacent with the way things are being run uh, and a trade show like Basel could just go on autopilot for years and years without any real improvements uh, to accommodations or um, you know the value that they offer for the exhibitors yeah I so uh, what was what was kind of your initial reaction yeah I mean not to not to sound like a complete echo chamber but yeah I, I couldn't agree more and i think the the one kind of keyword that i'd focused in on here and actually you just you just mentioned it was complacency i mean you see you see a lot of that in the swiss watch industry as a whole and i, I wouldn't say complacency but like there is uh, there is a strong compelling argument for tradition i mean the, the traditions are what uh, i would you know argue keep a lot of the products that we know and love coming back and keeps them exciting and a lot of the products that we love now, we love them now because they adhere to a strict tradition from you know a long time ago, and the romance of that is, is what uh, is a strong underpinning within the industry. Um, now, the counterbalance to that, though, and, I, and this is why I've always you know really loved Omega as a brand, is that um, they've maintained that history and they've maintained those traditions, but they haven't been afraid to rock the boat and continually throw things at the wall to see what sticks, and. I th- you know I think if if Hayek is saying you know if you guys aren't going to be the arbiters of change we are uh, I really like the fact that they're they're taking the reins and uh, and they're kind of putting their money where their mouths are and I think um, they wouldn't pull out of it unless they had a pretty strong plan to do something themselves that was uh, either better more exciting or um, 
more approachable for not just industry folks, uh, but for the consumer as well. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think it, it, it did definitely come as a surprise. And I think the, the back and forth between like he said, she said was, was pretty interesting because, um, well, Swatch was the, you know, there, there are essentially three groups at Basel. It's Swatch, it's Rolex, and it's Paddock. And you lose one of your 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 three biggest cash cows. I mean, that's who else does that account for? I mean, so we would no longer have a, we would no longer see watches from Omega, uh, Longines, who had an amazing showing last year. Um, I mean, it's a it's a laundry list of brands that are yeah. That are, I think people are gonna quickly realize. Um, how how much the way they consume Basel content has been affected, right? Uh, you know, because if you, if you take a brand like Longines, Rado is in there, Hamilton, Tissot, there a, lot of those, <laughs> a lot of those brands, a lot of those brands are companies that pull you out of the insanity of Basel uh, and bring you kind of bring you back down to earth and get you excited about products that you can you know you can pick up for yourself. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Longines Longines had the Avigation Big Eye. Hamilton had that crazy Panda Chrono uh, one year. Tissot yeah. had another Chrono. Uh, Rado had the Captain Cook. Those are I I feel like those are really fun watches for um, you know people like the two of us to, to get into. Certina had some super cool stuff at the show as well. Um, yeah, I mean yeah. there were there was there was no small shortage of of brands uh, at the show that had exciting offerings. And let's be honest, like you know when you when you look at covering the task of I mean, this secretly, this is this is great news for me because um, <laughs> covering covering the show is a really daunting task, and it's not so much that covering the show. I mean, there's you know, with all the time in the world, stuff would still get missed. But there's there are great, there are legitimately great watches that we simply cannot cover because you know the expectations of covering certain brands or certain product launches or certain whatever, and you don't have enough time to. You know, some of the really interesting stuff that falls through the cracks at Basel doesn't really get reported on until May, June, July. I mean, that stuff is is still kind of creeping out even now. And it would be really cool if, if things were parsed out a little bit such that we could actually spend enough time in Omega's booth to be able to see. I mean, it wasn't this year. I think it was two years ago. They launched over a, like, over 150 SKUs. I, I want to say it was over 150. Okay, that, I mean that 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 number is a little bit a little bit uh, ridiculous. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. However, there were some amazing there were some amazing pieces in there, um, yeah. and that like that World Timer was actually one of them. And that, that to me at the time was a pretty compelling story. It was Omega's first World Timer. It was this, this, and this. It was, I mean, it was a, it was a harbinger for a lot of other things that were going on at the time, but but nobody covered it until probably April or May. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, the the greater thing that could happen here is, you know, with a smaller show, uh, you can get more time, you know, higher quality time spent with more interesting releases across the board. Um, so, I mean, it could be, it could be a win for consumers. I, I agree. I mean, that you, you're looking at, you know, the industry and, and consumers in general changing the way we not just produce, but consume um, news and stories. And I, I think the, the, the potential loser here is, is also in a way the consumer, because it is really exciting. Um, you know, the auto industry is, is often compared to the, the watch industry in this capacity, but how um, it is exciting for fans to sit on the sidelines and wait for the veil to be lifted on these new products. And there are very few industries that still... Uh, you know, five, four, three, two, one. Here's the new thing. You know, and and 
I, I would hate to see that go away um, because it is it feels a little bit like Christmas, you know, in uh, the end of March when you wake up one morning and there's just there's there's an overload of news and all this new stuff that that there is to see. Yeah, the trade shows. Uh, I, I I've been reading that trade shows in general have been downsizing. Um, oh, hugely. Yeah. Whether it's cars or, you know, even if we're talking about bands and music's music in the in the pre-talk um you know there's the summer and winter nam shows uh for music gear and audio equipment and all that stuff so all, all of those shows have been um cut down significantly but i'm really interested to see what brands do on their own so mm -hmm. I, I don't know i think it was a couple of years ago braymont um kind of said goodbye to mm -hmm. to basel also point, they started yeah. doing their, their they started doing their townhouse uh events which I found to be more exciting, uh, no, absolutely more efficient. They can do their own thing. Uh, I've never owned a Bremont, but um, I, I would I would love to see more more events like that take place. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. You know, and I think I think that boils down to what what are trade shows for? We talked a little bit about the bike industry. I, I came from the bike industry prior to spending more time with watches and and. Um, that all the trade shows in the bike industry also in really rapid decline. But the trade shows, there's one, there's one show that takes place in uh, in Monterey uh, once a year in April, and that's the only trade show in the bike industry that's actually increased in attendance. It's either it's either it's either maintained or increased in attendance. It's because it's consumer facing and it's it's more of a a festival and a celebration rather than a release platform because brands don't go to it. To release new products anymore because they can do that over the web and i think when you when you look at what a brand is actually using the trade show for is it a news platform is it a way to connect to your buyers is it a way to connect to your end consumers brands need to figure out what that's for and i think the old model of what basel being as a news platform is fully outdated um yeah. and what, to your point bramont has used the townhouses to because they open the townhouses they have a media day and then it's open to the public and i think it's an yeah. amazing way to to bring people through. I mean, that's always been kind of one of Vermont's calling cards is their, um, their customer interactions are, are warm. Uh, Nick and Giles are super approachable. I mean, everybody that I've met at that, at that brand and I've, I've, I've owned, uh, I've owned one, I've owned, I've owned a Bremont before and the ownership experience was really, was really, it felt like a neat thing. It felt like you were part of something. And I think, I think that's, that's the, the key to survivability here is, is, and not just for the trade shows, but but a but a big aspect for the industry as well is is uh, those consumer interactions. I just think you can't underscore how important those are. And I think there are still cool ways to make it feel like Christmas morning, um, you know, for people holding releases and and doing um, kind of doing. You know, if 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 Swatch were to do its own show like SIHH, I mean, we still get all the SIHH goodies in what January or February. So it does feel like we kind of have kind of have two <laughs> two things to cover but i couldn't imagine having all the richmond brands at basel and having to cover jlc and oh gosh i mean could you imagine <laughs> could you imagine throwing in all of the all that stuff into the basel chaos i just it's just i mean basel basel day one this year i think we published around 30 art articles on oh, press days alone i believe it <laughs> so that would be that would be pretty pretty wild yeah i just um, i just couldn't imagine yeah i think the digital age is is also something to take into consideration and i think nick hayek's words were along the lines of it just doesn't make sense 
today mm-hmm. to, to do these these trade shows mm-hmm. um he mentioned that they have a strong connection with their consumers they have a strong connection with their retailers mm-hmm. and that right now they want to explore more creative uh, opportunities with upcoming partners mm-hmm. um so we were also and people have been speculating about this for years um whatever omega will do in 2019 for the 50th anniversary of the apollo moon landings uh, they're gonna have to leverage it in some way um right. i don't think it's unreasonable for me to assume that um but i i always pictured it at, at, at basel world um so yeah, yeah. kind of looking forward to see what happens now <laughs> we're looking for an omega branded rocket on cape canaveral <laughs> next july <laughs> that would be that would be pretty sweet oh jeez. Uh, actually a, i think a pretty cool event at the uh, smithsonian would be yeah yeah kind of awesome what was it two years ago or a year ago where they did i don't know if you were there i i I just followed it through the periphery but uh it was it was in uh it was in i i I should have uh i should have done a little homework on this prior to the conversation but they did omega did some big event in texas with all the astronauts and george clooney and all the speedmaster fans and what anniversary was that for? Oh, was it? it was yeah. like two or three years I, ago. I, anyway, they 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 yeah. kind of did that, and it that seemed like a really neat uh, a really neat thing. But yeah, I, I've heard, you know, even even at the, at the Omega, you know, the Omega meeting that we had at Basel this year, um, the gentleman that walked us through the collection, he was <laughs> on on both hands. He was outlining, he was counting off all the different um, anniversaries and. Uh, things that Omega kind of had percolating for 2019. So it, it doesn't surprise me that given all the, you know, their, one, their love for limited editions and anniversaries and such, and two, them pulling out of the show, it could be them just doubling down on like a really aggressive, exciting like release year. Because um, it seemed like, I mean, this year there were there were some big, like the Seamaster 300 was, was big-ish. There have been some interesting speedies but there wasn't anything huge this year and it could be they're just kind of holding their cards for next year those new seamasters were enough for me yeah they were enough for me as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh so i think another question that people kind of uh tiptoe around is uh will the show be okay will basel world survive i I saw a lot of you know rest in peace basel world um, (laughs) talk going around i really don't think it's that extreme uh i think the show is the show is going to go on. Um, but if, I, mean, I don't know if LVMH changes their mind, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's a different story, but, but right now I'm just kind of curious to see how the show feels next year. Um, it's still going to be really sad to not get news from, you know, Longine, Rado, yeah, uh, yeah, or whatever. But, uh, you know, for now, I don't think there's going to be much change. I think, uh, the show's still probably going to go on autopilot. Um, yeah, I agree. And I mean, I, I mean, look, like a lot of the people that went to the show looked at LVMH brands. They looked at Rolex. They looked at Patek. They looked at all the other brands that were there. In addition to the Swatch brands, I, I mean, I attendance I'm sure is gonna is gonna fall uh, based on like retailer meetings and stuff. Like a lot of the, the actual brand partners will be reduced, but. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was funny because the the overarching theme that you heard from everybody this year was that Basel was really small and the hallways were empty and that they'd constricted everything and you know to try to feel make it feel like there was uh, there was more activity. It was my first Basel. I've been to a lot of other trade shows uh, that have also been in decline and you know with smaller numbers. 
Um, but it felt pretty busy. There was still, you know, on day one, the news day, there was still like a, a big crowd outside the door. There was a stampede to Rolex. There was chaos for the first like two yeah. hours. Um, it seemed, I mean, in, in the general scheme of trade shows that I've, I've attended, uh, some in Vegas, some in, you know, other parts of the country, it felt large. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I know that's only in comparison to yesteryear when it was absolutely just like gobsmackingly massive, which is not yeah. anymore. But to your point, I, yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere either. And I think, I think Omega is going to find ways to deliver news and in a meaningful way next year. I don't think they would pull out without a pretty strong plan in place already. So I'm eager to see how that shakes out, quite frankly. Yeah, of course. I think during the duration of the show, it was still around 100,000 people. Yeah, when, yeah. When all was said and done. And know. that's that's not a small number because no. the town of Basel is like, it's like Toledo, Ohio. I mean, this is like the Toledo, no offense to our listeners in Ohio. <laughs> uh, I went to school in Northwestern Ohio, so I feel like I can speak to this. But um, it is, I mean, it's it's like, it's like, it's like, a, it felt very much like a Midwestern European town. I don't know how yeah, else to describe yeah. it. It's, it's, it's a big, it's a big cultural event for yeah, them too. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah, it really is. But like the taxi drivers, like... You know, it's it's crazy how expensive things get when the show comes to town. And, like, the locals, the locals like the show, but the locals also kind of hate the show because, like, their favorite restaurants basically for two weeks are, like, doubled in size. They're doubled in price for no reason whatsoever. Like, all the hotels, um, you know, the, the cost of the hotels go crazy through the roof. And so there was talk of, you know, the, the, new, um, the new management behind Basel they were working on. Um, like catering packages and hotel packages and making things more affordable for smaller brands, but also for, for people to be able to go and enjoy the show and not have to, not have to stay four towns away or, uh, you know, for right. it to not be so prohibitively expensive. Because I think, you know, when a show's impact um, is negated, when a show's economical impact is negated at the local level because it's so prohibitively expensive for even locals to participate in or reap the benefits of, I think that's also a much bigger problem. Um, and for a smaller kind of European, old European uh, city for that to, to take place. And it was actually, I really felt bad for, there were two or three different taxi drivers that I had that were like, not down with it. <laughs> not at all. And, uh, you know, I felt bad about that because you'd think that, you know, you go to Vegas and those guys are psyched when like the jewelers conference comes to town and they're psyched right. when JCK is, is around because, um, you know, there's high rollers and there's lots of business and business is good. Nothing else changes, you know? Um, so yeah, accommodations are a huge, um, kind of issue. And that's, that's one that really upsets me just from the stories I hear from, from you guys that have been to the show. Um, something needs to change there to accommodate yeah. press. Yeah. Uh, brands. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't and, agree and more. Just, <laughs> and just the cost, just the cost of those, um, you know, exhibitor spaces. Yeah. It's like, I can't, it's even, astronomical. I can't even believe what some brands uh, spend there. So we'll, we'll you see know, how, yeah. how Basel reacts. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. No, that, that has to happen. I mean, especially it's, it's created an environment where people can do it just because they can. I mean, my, <laughs> my Airbnb didn't even have Wi-Fi. But it was clearly like a business Airbnb, like for the show. So they were talking about like, oh, it's, you know, this walking distance to the show or whatever. No Wi-Fi. So I was like hotspotted <laughs> my phone for four or five days or whatever. And it was just like, you can't do that just because you can. I mean, the show has created this like toxic environment that, that 
like ah, it was it was so bizarre to me that it was so unhospitable for for us to go there and like be good at our jobs yeah but, hot you spotting know. your phone <laughs> yeah yeah it was a fry an egg a, on that thing yeah <laughs> you know something like that so yeah change is coming hopefully i'm i'm, I'm for it so cool well it's uh this is obviously a, a pretty big topic that's going to continue to evolve uh we've covered it on a blog to watch uh, just on the surface but i'm sure we're going to continue to um report on it as the story changes as we get updates as we talk to people uh in the industry so definitely stay tuned for that um you know but overall i think this was a, a fun episode we um we talked about some cool summer watches we've been wearing some recommendations for uh watches to wear when you're having a good time uh, this year and um some watches that we're kind of drooling over in the i guess grail category yeah absolutely um yeah, and, we also and kept things serious for a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's 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 tough to make that transition from a semi like you know the, the death of the industry conversation <laughs> to kind of looking ahead. But but I do. I mean, I, I we were worried about that a little bit, but I do genuinely feel like um, you know in an industry where everything arguably happens twenty years too late. I mean, that's kind of why we love this industry is because nothing changes. But at the same time, right. like there are degrees of change that are not just acceptable, but they are like absolutely required to be able to move things forward. So. Um, I, I, I think it's exciting. I think there are a lot of people that are, that are really worried about it, but I, I, um, and maybe that's just because I haven't been in it quite entrenched in it for quite as long, but I, th I think, uh, I think there's a lot to be excited about. One thing I would love to say too, though, is just that if this, uh, if this podcast has been a good listen for you, if it's, uh, it's been a good part of your commute or wherever you consume your podcast, definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. That's super helpful. Comment, uh, if you're uh, watching or listening on YouTube, where else are we? Uh, where else are we hosting this? <laughs> Everywhere. Everywhere. All, SoundCloud all is on SoundCloud. Where you can enjoy your podcast. <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, well, Michael, this has been a lot of fun. I, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, and uh, inviting me on the show this time. So I'm going to get back to doing all the Instagrams. Yeah. Likewise, Zach. Uh, thanks for your time, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, this has been the Spending Time Podcast. My name is Mike. Uh, thanks for listening. Cheers, everybody.